Blog Talk Radio. Radio Hour. The EAL Radio Show presents Eastern history, stories, and memories by the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. We are fortunate to have had at our disposal over 40 years of history as told by these pilots of this great airline. Your producer and Admiral John Engel edited a book titled The Best of Repartee after 30 years of magazines had been published and distributed to REPA members, affiliates, and spouses of those that had passed away. The magazine was the standard which other pilot retiree associations strive to equal. Although repartee is no longer published in magazine format, editor Captain Jim Holder has now published a smaller version newsletter, but it's still called repartee. Congratulations, Jim. It was a great job on your first first publishing. We are hoping to continue broadcasting great articles as they become available by the Eastern family of employees. Now, let's get the show started. Hey, Our stories range from the sounds you just heard, or better stated, from the male wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011, TriStar, also known as the Whisper Liner. As we like to tell all our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provided by Blog Talk Radio, and that's the address that you would put in your computer, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. 
Do that at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and you'll be listening to the Reaper Radio Hour. Click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m., or you will be given the message that the show has not yet begun. Many just call in to the show at 213-816-1611. They can talk there and listen there, of course. This will put you in on the producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone, your phone's microphone, and then join the fun. Now you can choose to listen or talk with a host. Last week in Episode 7, we shared repartee stories titled Steam Heat, or How to Give the Captain Cockpit Heat in a DC-3, a story by Captain Hank Foley, Ladies Can Be Funny, Show the lighter side of Eastern ladies. Empty tank, empty tanks was a poem of retired Eastern pilots, as most of us can relate to. Remember, you can listen to any of these broadcasts of the Reaper Radio Hour by going to the EAL Radio Show, Show website's archive. Dorothy has uh, installed it there with a description of the show. Now, let's listen to what we have found interesting for this episode eight of the reaper radio hour the latest development of the Sierra Autogyro, the only successful and practical form of rotating wing craft yet devised. It represents the culminating point of 13 years patient work on the part of its inventor, Senor de la Sierra. Compared with normal aircraft, or even previous autogyros, the most noticeable difference in features is that the machine has no fixed wings, ailerons, elevators, or even a rudder. The whole of the support of the machine in flight is taken by the three-bladed rotor above, which rotates at a practically constant speed of 200 revolutions per minute. This rotor is not driven by the engine in flight, but by the action of the air upon the blade. If the control column is held in a central position, the machine flies straight and level. If it is moved to the left, the machine turns to the left. To the right, the machine turns to the right. Inclined backwards, the machine climbs, and if inclined forward, the machine dies. That recording was done in 1933. As the editor of Repartee in 2000, I had the pleasure of talking with Captain Johnny Miller about his experiences as Eastern's rooftop airmail pilot and flying his Bonanza in the late 80s. In his late 80s, he asked me to run the article you are about to hear in our next 
Retired Eastern Pilots Magazine repartee, which I did. Now, here is that story. Eastern's Rooftop Airmail by Captain Bill Malone in the 1992 issue of Repartee. By 1930, one of the strangest-looking aircraft appeared on the scene. Its offbeat, irreverent design captured the public's fancy. The press called it the Flying Windmill. Held aloft by large rotating blades, the aircraft could do the most unbelievable things. It could fly at, at an astonishingly slow speed or really cover the ground. Either way, it was virtually impossible to resist the urge to look up, look up at it. If you could look real close, you would have been able to see that the pilot in the cockpit was probably our own, Eastern's own, Johnny Miller. Not only was John test pilot for the Kellett Autogyro Company, a licensee of the Autogyro Company of America, Pitt Karen. He was one of the first to fly, succeeding Lou Levy, who had left Kellett. Airmail shuttle service between the roof of the Philadelphia General Post Office and Central Airport in Camden, New Jersey, was inaugurated July 6, 1939, by First Assistant Postmaster General W.W. Howes and Postmaster Joseph F. Gallagher. Five round-trip flights over the six-mile route were made daily by an autogyro constructed by Kellert Autogyro Corporation and flown by Eastern Airlines, Incorporated. Visitors were admitted to the roof to witness the flights. In the 1930s, aviation was simply a novelty for many. We went out to the airport to watch the mail plane land or look at the variety of airplanes in the hangar. You might even catch a glimpse of Howard Hughes, Wally Post, or Will Rogers. Everyone went to the county fair to be thrilled by the air show and take a ride in an airplane, if you were brave enough. We drove out to Lake Hurst, New Jersey, to marvel at the size of the dirigible. There were many innovations on the scene, and one of them was the autogyro. According to John Miller, takeoff in the autogyro was short and climb out quite steep. About 35 miles per hour forward speed was required and quickly obtained, especially when there was a little headwind. Takeoff distance was short, zero in a 30 to 35 mile wind. There were even some jump takeoff autogyros under development at the time. Pitcairn's rotable model was being tested for commuters. There seemed to be no limit to what the autogyro could be used for. It could spray crops, land on rooftops, or rush newspaper reporters to locations where fast-breaking stories were taking place. John Miller gave it the most practical application, flying the U.S. mail from the roof of the Philadelphia Post Office across the river to Camden. Bridges over the wide Delaware River had not yet been built. Mail trucks had to use the ferry at Penn's Grove or Pennsville. The fact that the autogyro attracted so much attention made it perfect for advertising products of the day. Beech nut chewing gum, 
Champion spark plugs, the Detroit News, and Coca-Cola decorated many of the fuselages. Your editor and his father had their first airplane ride in the Coca-Cola Autogyro back in 1932, piloted by Captain Campbell, whom John Miller remembers. Amelia Earhart climbed to a record 18,415 feet in one, then attempted a round-trip transcontinental flight. When she arrived on the West Coast, John, Johnny Miller had already preceded her to his autogyro, in his autogyro. On her re- return trip, she cracked up and condemned the autogyro as being unsafe and with no future. John Miller refuted this denunciation by successfully flying the Eastern Airlines rooftop airmail. Juan de la Serva, inventor of the autogyro, was inspired by Louis Burroughs' 1909 flight across the English Channel. After Serva's three-engine bomber, the C-3, crashed, he searched for a design which would permit safe flight at a slow speed. He hit on the idea of flight based on the principles of the rotary wing. The quest for safe flight was the origin of the autogyro rather than a desire for vertical flight or hovering. The fact that his rotor was unpowered like a windmill eliminated the problems associated with torque. Flexibility of his rotor blades automatically compensated for varying amounts of lift. One of Johnny Miller's early assignments uh, involved flying one of the Army's autogyros to Chicago to have it on exhibition at an aircraft show. Weather was bad with a severe winter storm, snowstorm, near zero cold, and a 60 miles per hour wind. Approaching Harrisburg, he noticed he was losing fuel. He had to declare an emergency in order to land because the field was closed due to high winds. In spite of the wind, he was able to taxi to the line in the autogyro. A leaking fuel selector valve supplied by the Army was replaced, and he continued on to Chicago. Even though all the fixed-wing airplanes were grounded, the autogyros had the ability to handle high winds on the ground due to their lack of large fixed wing area. Flying across the Allegheny Mountains in near near zero visibility, using a turn indicator and a compass, he caught occasional glimpses of the familiar ridges and the revolving beacons on them as he passed over. The next stop was Cleveland, where the snow snow had stopped, but the 18 inches of accumulation had the field closed. He landed anyway, right next to the Army hangar for fuel. Takeoff was made vertically out of the snow due to the strong wind. From there to Chicago, even stronger headwinds and actually below zero temperatures were encountered. Landing in Chicago was made in a parking lot next to the exhibition building. That flight surprised a a few people about the performance of the autogyro under such adverse conditions. The exhibition was already in progress, thus the urgency of the flight. 
The flight over the mountains in the heavy snow was made entirely on instruments with turn indicator, airspeed, and magnetic compass. No altitude or no attitude or directional gyros were available. Johnny believes this to be the first such flight on instruments with a wingless rotary wing aircraft. Flying the autogyro with only the primary group of instruments seemed to him to be no different from fixed-wing airplanes in that, in that respect, whereas helicopters seemed to be more of a problem. This flight proved beyond a doubt the versatility of the autogyro's adverse conditions. Another incident that demonstrated the safety of the autogyro occurred in 1934 while Johnny was towing a huge advertising banner nine feet high with his Pitcairn PCA-2 autogyro. While struggling with his 330 horsepower engine wide open to get more altitude over Arlington, New Jersey, the engine quit cold without warning due to the valve timing skip slipping. The banner instantly brought the airspeed to zero before he could release it, and the autogyro settled rapidly as he nosed down to gain airspeed. With the banner draping itself over houses, trees, and wires, Johnny landed in the cemetery among the gravestones without roll or damage. One wonders what the occupants would have said had they been able John Miller did some incredible things in autogyros, even by today's standards. He did loops at the National Air Races at, at Cleveland in 1932 and in Los Angeles in 1933 and in the International Air Races in Chicago the same year. In addition, he did a roll on top of a loop as well as a double Emmelman starting at grass level. At age eight, 87, he is still going strong, having recently flown his own airplane over all the 48 states, Alaska, Canada, and Mexico. When his wife Edith was alive, they, seemed, they, they rented light planes in England, France, Switzerland, Italy, and Hawaii to fly locally. He is a recipient of the Morris Award given by Sikorsky for rotary wing development. He has an honorary fellowship in the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. And he is the president of the United Flying Octogenarians. At a time in aviation history when the autogyro could easily have failed and sunk into ignominy, as did the dirigible, Johnny Miller kept rotary wing aircraft alive with both his extensive knowledge of their flight characteristics and his flying skill. As a result, the helicopter emerged and it has changed over lives forever, our lives forever. It has changed the whole concept of military operations. John Miller flew his Bonanza down from his home in Poughkeepsie, New York, to our REPA convention at the airport, they refused to rent him a car because of his age. Before we go into our next story, which I think you'll find funny, uh, I want to ask, I see Jim Holder's with us uh, today, and 
we have other callers, but uh, Jim, did you have the pleasure of uh, receiving stories from Johnny Miller uh, as I did before you? I certainly did, and uh, I ended up having an article about him in a Repartee magazine, I think on his 100th birthday or something like that. I can't yeah. remember exactly, but he was very active in the Bonanza Association, which I think yeah. you mentioned. I got on a little late because I was trying to get fertilizer spread before the rain comes in on my yard. But <laughs> okay. uh, he he uh, he wrote quite a few articles, and he didn't have the capability of putting them in the form that the Bonanza, whatever the name, I, I used to belong myself when I had a Bonanza Society, wanted their articles. So I helped him in that regard and uh, talked to him on the phone many times. Of course, I never really met him. But I talked to him on the phone, and uh, and he had an article about, I've forgotten the exact detail of what it was, but he had Delta flying a 707. And uh, <clears throat> I told him, it's a good thing that you uh, ran this article by because Delta never flew the 707. And of course, he thanked <laughs> me for that and all that kind of stuff. And he said he needed a young squirt like me to take care of him. Yes, I had a lot to do with Johnny Miller. I wish I could have met him in person. Yeah, he sent me a story, and I think I put it in one of the issues. I've got to find it about his trip out west in his Bonanza, and he landed. He he uh, got uh, a lack of oxygen, and he got a little woozy there, and and um, uh, he decided he'd put it down basically, and he ran off the runway in the Bonanza, mm -hmm. and yeah. he. Picked him up and took him to the hospital, and and I don't know how long it took to get his bonanza ready to uh, roll again, but he flew it out to uh, Los Angeles, and again mm. I believe they did not uh, want to rent him a car because of his age. I think he was in his nineties, <laughs> nineties at that time, but a remarkable yeah. gentleman. Yeah. And uh, uh, Bill Malone did a good a good job of of uh, reporting that story. So, okay. Mm -hmm. Now our next, uh, our next story is, uh, is a fun story. And uh, I thought it was cute enough to put on the air. So here we go. Let's do a tickled your fancy and see what you think of this one. Tickled her fancy. Captain J Hamilton Ham Brown was a good friend, a real Virginia gentleman and an excellent pilot. He also had a great sense of humor and the ability to teach people what they should or should not do. I recall one trip as a passenger from Miami to New York on a 749 Constellation. Back in those days, it was typical for the same front crew and flight attendants to be together for several trips. On this particular trip, the two flight attendants had been on a number of flights with Ham. One of the girls was a real worker, but the other one goofed off for long periods. She usually ended up in the laboratory primping or reading for 20 or 30 minutes. On this particular flight, it was about two hours out of Miami, when the hardworking girl went up to the cockpit to tell Ham that the other girl had been in the laboratory for about 10 minutes. Ham came out armed with a metal coat hanger a rubber band, and a feather, which he had brought on board for this occasion. He stretched the coat hanger so that it was burly long with a slight bend. He then used the rubber band to place the feather on one end. 
Then he went back to the unoccupied lavatory next to the one occupied by the flight attendant. On the 749 Constellation, the two laboratories at the rear of the cabin were adjacent to each other, served by one master can. Actually, it was comparable to an old-fashioned two-holer, except there was a partition between them. About 30 seconds after Ham entered, the door to the other laboratory burst open, and with a loud shout, the flight attendant dashed out, pulling up her pants while running. It was a sight to behold. Ham had maneuvered the bent coat hanger and feather into the hole. Somehow he managed to make contact with the girl on the other side. The flight attendant never really knew what tickled her fancy and apparently was too embarrassed to discuss it later. Ham told me sometime later that, as far as he knew, the girl never goofed off again on a flight. It was his way of getting more productivity from his crew. He certainly had a good point. Good one. <laughs> do you recall, good one. Do you recall that story, uh, Jim? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I missed it somehow. Uh, yeah. And... Um, uh, I can't visualize that, but uh, I guess in the early days th- that was uh, that was permissible, you know. And wow. Okay, only in repartee can you find such material as that. <laughs> and that's a fact I didn't know about the first Connie's, the one unit waste container for two separate toilets or lavatories. It made it made service quick. Quick, yeah, there you go. You know, looking through, yeah, have you? Oh, my golly, oh, golly. You know, looking through several short stories and memories about our Eastern Airlines, I found this in my published book, The Wings of Many. Why do so many former Eastern employees, we like to call them Eastern family, still talk about their days with this great company? Usually I can find a song to identify the story we're about to tell. The book of Jonathan Livingston Seagull immediately came to my mind as it was a story of a seagull finding its way in the world. Neil Diamond recorded the music for the movie and the song written and sung by Neil Diamond told the story of a seagull born to fly. So... Here is that song, and uh, we'll play it, and then we'll do a story that was written by Dick Borelli, Captain Dick Borelli. Enjoy this song. Lost on a painted sky Where the clouds are hung You may find him If you may find him Him 
underfoot by the heart You may know it If you may know it While the sand Would become the stone Which begat the spark Turned to living bone Holy, holy written story expresses the feeling of many. Born to Fly by Captain Dick Borelli Once upon a time, a boy wanted to fly. He graduated from high school, then enlisted in the Marine Corps. Eventually, he qualified for the NAVCAD program in Pensacola and became a Marine pilot. When he discharged, he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, there was a boy who wanted to fly. He attended college for two years and became a NAVCAD. He was commissioned in the Navy and became a carrier pilot. When he discharged, he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, there was a boy who wanted to fly. After graduating from college, He was commissioned and became an Air Force pilot. When he discharged, he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a girl wanted to fly. After high school, she entered the Army Warrant Officer program and became an Army pilot. After she discharged, she became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a girl wanted to fly. She graduated from high school attended Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and received her degree and the required pilot's licenses. After a short time as a flight instructor and a couple of years as a commuter pilot, she became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a boy wanted to fly. During high school and after graduation, he worked at the local airport in exchange for flying lessons. After getting his pilot's license, he became a crop duster, building his hours as he got more qualifications. He flew light plane charters and anything else he could to build his time and experience, and eventually he became an Eastern pilot. Once upon a time, a girl wanted to fly. She was intelligent, beautiful, but had no desire to be a pilot. She loved flying and wanted to be part of it. 
She lived in a small town and wanted to explore the world. She related well to people, learned quickly, was adventurous, and eventually she became an Eastern flight attendant. Once upon a time, a boy wanted to fly. He had no desire to become a pilot, but loved travel and adventure. His people's skills were outstanding. He was friendly and outgoing and became an Eastern flight attendant. Where did we come from? How did we get here? What inspired us to make the sky our domain? When did any of us look at the, uh, up the first time and see an airplane and say, that's what I want to do, that's where I belong? The journeys that eventually placed us all in an eastern airplane began in a variety of places, and the paths that led us here were different, but the results were the same. We were Eastern Airlines crew members. From Dick Merrill and Gene Brown flying mail over the mountains at night in open cockpit biplanes, the B-17 pilots in combat over Europe, the F-86 pilots in Korea, and the F-4 pilots in Vietnam, the crop dusters, instructors, and commuter pilots from all over the country had the same dream. The sky was in their blood and we united in the brotherhood of the air. We grew to know and appreciate each other as we learned to love the family that had adopted us, the Eastern family. Eastern Airlines still exist in our memories, in our minds, in our hearts, in our conversations, in our reunions, in our emails, in our souvenirs, in our pictures, and mostly in our enduring friendship. So long as one of us draws a breath, Eastern will never die. Remember, we were the pioneers of the modern age of aviation. We transitioned from props to jets, from flight at 10,000 feet to flight at 40,000 feet, from dead reckoning to GPS, from eyeball weather, and from round gauges to EFIS. We have seen and introduced the marvels of design and technology. Larger, faster airplanes carrying hundreds and hundreds of people over longer and longer distances, faster and faster and higher and higher. We have seen the near total erosion of the captain's authority and the dumbing down of cabin service, once so elegant and demanding that our crews were so justifiably proud. We have seen the reduction of cabin service to the point where flying is no more special than riding a bus, narrow seats with no leg room, no service, and inadequate, often dirty, lavatories. When was the last time you got a meal or a magazine in flight or a pillow, or a blanket, or a complimentary drink because of flight delay. There is no longer communication between the cabin and the cockpit. Dispatch now controls the aircraft. There is no longer a pilot in command since no one in the cockpit has the authority to make a decision without approval from the ground. Remember? Remember who we were? Remember what we did? Remember the challenges we faced and the battles we fought? 
Think back to those nights when we penetrated fronts without the benefit of radar, when we could fly VFR, choose our own route and fuel and alternate. Think back to when the decision to go or not to go was solely at the discretion of the captain, hence the title pilot in command. Remember when a crew flew together for an entire month and everyone knew everyone else. Remember when we were all friends. Remember when there was no animosity between the cabin and the cockpit because we were a crew friends. We knew each other's names and we supported each other no matter what. Remember when the entire crew went out to dinner on the layover. Remember. Remember who we were and what we did because, ladies and gentlemen, there will never be anyone like us again. Eastern Airlines exists today in our memories and our hearts, but Eastern will live until the last memory dies. So remember, 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 remember. Beautifully done by Dick Borelli and um, um, pretty much describes the way most everyone that listens and participates in the radio show feel about our airline. Because of time, I'm not going to do the next reading. It's uh, one that uh, I think is a, a real good story that uh, was uh, written. And uh, it's titled Magical Biblical Shakespearean Flight, and I'll save that for next Monday. But um, that's our readings from the Best of Repartee, the history as recorded by its pilots, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association's official magazine. And I hope you will stick around for some REPA chat. I see we have a few people on our line, and so I'm going to open the lines up now and see what's going on and what your thoughts are about what the stories and so forth that we heard today. So who wants to start the, the REPA chat, as we'll call it, henceforth? <laughs> henceforth. Well, I will jump in. I'll jump in if I can real quick and say that I have not read that by Dick Borelli. That was a wonderful article you read by him. I don't know why I missed it. I, uh, I thought I'd read, read all of the, Silver Falcon stuff, but I must have missed that one. Beautiful job, Dick. Well, you know, Dick sent that to me, and I was looking for stories to put in the wings of many, and the best I can recall, uh, he emailed it to me, or somehow uh, it was sent to me, and I got it, and I put it in there. And um, I just thought it was uh, brilliantly written as to the feelings of Dick, because uh, Mm -hmm. they're the same feelings that uh, the Eastern family have for our, our great, uh, no longer original Eastern airlines, even though we do have a new one in the air now, but, uh, yeah, congratulations. The old one. Yeah, that's right. But, uh, it was a great, uh, read and, uh, thought you might enjoy it. It was excellent. I so when it came to uh, Johnny Miller, I, said, I think my dad uh, mentioned a few times in his uh, later years that he had flown 
uh, several times as a co-pilot for uh, for Johnny Miller on the DC-3s. Oh, okay. So it goes back yeah. a few years because Johnny Miller came on with Eastern, I think, in 1937, and my yeah. dad started there in 1941. I met uh, uh, an interesting lady uh, up in <clears throat> Morristown, Tennessee. My wife's family is from uh, Morristown and that, that area. Actually, they're from a little town called Bulls Gap. Um the home of Archie, uh, what's his name on Hee Haw? But at any rate, um, I used to fly my steerman up there, and Peggy take her up there with me, and uh, we would visit her family, and the uh, steerman outside in the uh, apron there at Morristown, a beautiful airport, sitting on a on the ridge, and a long runway, and as a matter of fact, uh, I I checked out or uh, took those. Uh, that were trying to get their Eagle Scout badge uh, in the Stearman and uh, told them about it. But Evelyn Johnson was the fixed space operator, the manager at Morristown. Now, Evelyn, if you want to look it up on the Internet, had and has, I still believe to this day, the most time of any person that has flown an airplane, with the exception of one, and his last name was Johnson, too. And I tried to meet him in Montgomery, Alabama, where he flew out of. But Evelyn had just a few hours shorter than this fellow that flew the pipeline patrol or the the, uh, line patrol or whatever they call it. But Evelyn had uh, 67,000 or 72,000. I can't remember now. I have her book. But she was a great fan of Johnny Miller. And Johnny would go to see her. Now, they were about the same age. Uh, Evelyn died when she was 93, I believe, the best I can recall. And she it was a result of an automobile accident that she was driving a car. But several years later... Uh, because of that accident, uh, it uh, it uh, was the reason for her death at that age, at that old of an age. But Johnny Miller, at 102 years old, a year before she died, flew his Bonanza up to Morristown, Tennessee, and visited with Evelyn after she had had that accident. And I thought that was quite remarkable at 102 yeah. flying that bonanza. Now, that's a true story, folks. And, yeah. um, uh, of course, he died, I believe, he was 103 or 4 years old, somewhere around there when he passed away. But he was a pioneer for sure. Definitely. And so was she. Yeah. Have any of you flown in an autogyro? I'm not even sure I've seen one in live uh, <laughs> Well, I, they have one down at the uh, at the Reading, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, the Air Museum, which is in various stages of of uh, uh, restoration. It's a kellet, just like the one that uh, Tony okay. Miller used to fly. And uh, they haven't flown it yet, but I, I went through the shop there one time, and I had a chance to see it. Anyway, it's quite a quite a unique piece of machinery. <laughs> now, that was many years you, ago. 
if you can visualize an airplane without wings, elevators, or rudders doing a, a loop and then doing a roll on the top of that loop, I, that's unbelievable. It's hard it to is. imagine that. Definitely. And Jim Holder, if you want to see one, the audio clip that I used uh, back in 1933 when that inauguration was done, and uh, I found it on the Internet, uh, there's some good visual video along with that newsreel. It was reported by Path A News. You guys remember mm -hmm. Path A News, don't you? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, just go to your browser and search that out, and you'll see that autogyro, uh, the Kellett. Well, and does anybody know how fast he had to be going to actually take off? Because uh, he well, talked about taking yes. off on top of these skyscrapers in New York. Well, I, think I don't it was think about, that's a very long runway. No, it takes about, I think it was 10, 10 yards or something like that. But uh, he said in the story that I read that if there was a 35 or 40 mile an hour wind, it took off zero airspeed. I mean, really? you just rotated those no, blades. No, no ground run. Yeah, just, yeah, no yeah. ground run. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. in the air. Yeah. And the steep angle that they climbed at, and that's demonstrated in that video clip about the um, autogyro that I read, I uh, had on the show. But an interesting, um, I believe they started building them again, uh, Mike, didn't they? Some uh, There's a company building. that makes uh, a modern-day uh, autogyro, and it's uh, kind of a strange-looking thing. I don't know who makes it right <laughs> offhand, but uh, that, all those, of course, anything that, uh, that's got rotors on it like that, I mean, we always used to call helicopters fling wings. So, yeah. and you could uh -huh. always you could always tell a helicopter pilot on the radio just by listening to his voice because it was always. There's a little thing going around on the internet. Uh, this old guy, like 88 years old, with all of his friends standing around, he goes out and props the thing. Props the thing. <laughs> then he takes off on a grass strip that's about as wide as my truck, and he flies around <laughs> for about 15 minutes or so, and then he comes in and lands. And I mean, he, yeah. he walks like he's on the verge of the death, you know, and then he flies his butt. Yeah. Have y'all seen hey, that? John? No. John, what did she say? Someone Don? interrupted you. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just going to say, uh, uh, the helicopter pilots, when they tell them to uh, go into a holding pattern, they cheat. <laughs> yeah, they just stop. <laughs> they cheat. <laughs> yeah. That's good, Don. <laughs> oh, well, it's very interesting. I always called helicopters uh, inverted lawnmowers with an edger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, and I used to fly with Mary Gaffney, and I looked up Mary Gaffney. Uh, she was still alive, and unfortunately, she died uh, three years ago. Uh, I had in mind seeing if I could get her installed in the next class of the Florida Aviation Hall of Fame in uh, Lakeland. And she had passed away. 
But Mary had every rating and also an FAA designee in just about every type of airplane, seaplanes, fixed wings, land, helicopters, you name it. She was uh, experienced. And, of course, she was a three-time world champion of uh, aviatrix, whatever they call them, uh, female acrobatic winner three times in a row. That's world championships in her yeah. pit special. She got one of, um, um, what's his name? Uh, 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 I want I want to say Earl Pitts, but that's not right. Pitts, uh, out at, uh, we used to go, I used to go out with Mary to see her airplane being built, the one that she used in her acrobatic uh, uh, air shows. And um, what's what was his last, first name? name was, his last name was Pitts. And he operated out of Brown Airport, Brown's Airport down in Kendall, Florida. And uh, I went on several flights with Mary when she was flying her helicopter for CBS News when they had the first original uh, space shots with John Glenn and Shepard and so forth. And they would uh, get their reporter to the nearest TV station after they got the filming of the launch of um, – that was interesting, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to get her in posthumously. I can't say the word, but uh, uh, she belongs in the uh, Hall of Fame. This is Chuck. Yeah, Chuck. My brother, who's uh, he's retired now. He lives in Montana. Uh, he's been a pilot since he was 14. Uh, he actually flew a helicopter for the... Miami Police Department, and his instructor was Mary Gaffney. She taught him how to fly a helicopter so he could get his uh, certificate, and then, of course, he got on with the police department, and then eventually he started teaching other um, policemen how to fly the helicopter that they had because uh, that was a big thing down in Miami. They would chase the drug dealers out in the oceans with their ocean-going boats with helicopters with a big searchlight mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I met him out at um, Tamiami Airport. I think that's where Mary had her last. Yeah, uh, Kendall Flying back. School. Yeah, yeah, she had Flying it there. School there. And he, yeah. uh, he took me in and introduced me to her and Charlie who's the mechanic, her husband and mechanic. Oh, uh, Charlie. Yeah. yeah, I was very interested in talking to him because being a mechanic and stuff. But um, Well, Chuck, if you could get him to talk, because Charlie, uh, yeah, every time talk I much. saw him, I worked for Mary for a year and a half, and, uh, yeah, he was interested in what you could get him to talk because he was a very quiet man, much older than Mary, I think 10, 12 years oh, yeah. older. Yeah. And he was a mechanic with Pan American. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, yeah. but um, yeah, I, get, I talked to him a little bit. But uh, um, of course, Mary, she was uh, she was always willing to tell about the old days. Oh yeah, um, I played a many, many a chess game with her. Um, oh, did you? We didn't have anything to do. We had a chess board set up right there in the in the school or her flight operations and. She'd get out the old chessboard, and whoever was around, we'd play chess. And uh, 
a great gal. She was a super lady. Yeah. She, it's really interesting to talk to some of the old, uh, old people that came up in the business, you know. Johnny Ray, I got to talk to him in Eastern. We had lunch together, and uh, he was he was telling some of the stories about you know being back in the old days. Yeah, um, he was really a you know, really nice gentleman to to sit down and listen to. Yeah. Well, uh, we're coming to our end here, and I want uh, Dorothy to give us a report of what's going on. Okay, if you can, we have, yeah. uh, yes, we can. Uh, on, um, of course, uh, Monday we have May 11th. That's going to be the evolu- evolution of the airplane seat, and it's going to be followed by the following Monday of the uh, music, the- movie theme songs of the 60s music. That's going to be on our Eastern Airlines Music and History Program. And then uh, following that we'll have roundtable discussion of the surplus of pilots because of COVID-19. That's going to be an open mic roundtable discussion. Of course, in between that, we have repartee every single Thursday. Back to you, Neil. Yeah, and I want to thank very much uh, Colleen DeFelice. You know, she sent a letter and in the letter I haven't read it yet but uh, it was opened by mistake and delivered to my office which I haven't been to in many many days because uh, restrictions here at the house and <laughs> but uh, Emery my technical advisor uh, goes to the office office often and he's closer by and he found the letter that Colleen had sent and and I talked to Colleen before or after uh, the letter, but she sent us a donation, so she's our one of our sponsors now. And uh, she okay. made a comment that uh, since she's been restricted at home, she's found herself not spending as much money, and she had a little bit of extra to spare. So, <laughs> oh, that was anybody good. having that feeling, don't don't be shy. Send it in. We we certainly. <laughs> That was very nice. You'll be sure to yeah. send me a copy of that, correct me? I will. I will. Thank I sure you. will. Yeah. I'll put it up on so, the website and uh, list it out, too. And I went and got gas for my car, and gas here was uh, $1.53. Don't know what it is in your area, <laughs> but some things are are good. Uh, I paid $1.71 yesterday. Seventy one no yeah, dollar fifty. They, ha- they haven't dropped the price of Avgas. <laughs> oh, I bet not. <laughs> Here on Long Island it's about really? a, it's about a dollar sixty for for gas, <laughs> I, th- I believe for car gas, but it's still like five dollars and change for oh, Avgas. My oh wow. They haven't Airplane. they haven't dropped mm-hmm. it. I bet well, Marie you better get a gallon of that Avgas because it's gonna go by the wayside pretty soon. But that, yeah. that doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean why are no. you being charged so much up there, and you guys aren't even going anywhere? You can't go anywhere. <laughs> I, I don't understand well, that at all. This is typical. They make the gas finally affordable, and you can't. You haven't got any place to go. Yeah, well, yeah. that's true. We thought about that as well. Don't we? Don't think we don't. <laughs> uh, 
Well, that's just like that. That's not a free glass. How come we have to pay more to get something added to it? I don't know. Uh, we always want ethanol free for our lawnmowers and chainsaws and everything like that. It's always about a dollar more than with it. Yeah. ethanol. Mike, what is We're the paying octane? them not to put in ethanol. What's the yeah. octane on, Mike? That's all 100, 100 low lead. Okay. Well... That's just general aviation. I haven't checked with my my guys to see what. Of course, they haven't flown anywhere. I don't know what they're paying for uh, for uh, Jet A out there in uh, in uh, in McClellan in Sacramento, which was where we were based. The airplanes you've just been sitting ever since this Corona thing. Well, Mike, I bet marine gas is probably about like aviation gas. Probably very yeah. expensive. Yeah. They feel like if you got an airplane, you got a boat, you can afford this big, big dog. Yeah, it's like owning a Cadillac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, our sign-off music is playing now in the background, so we'll see you again next week, same time when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Remember the EAL radio show Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when we bring you the origin of the aircraft seat, Monday, May 11th at 7 p.m. So until then, so long, Eastern, and so long to our Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. Hey, good job, Neil. Good job. Goodbye, y'all. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Good job, Neil. Great, great trip.